we uh, complete our series this week, a series that paralleled Vacation Bible School with the treasures of the Son of God in our lives. We've uh, looked at how we are born by Him, we uh, are known by Him, we are forgiven by Him, and today we're going to look at being what it means to uh, be loved by Him. And there are two passages of Scripture we want to read uh, together. First of all, from John 14, beginning in verse 1. Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known also my Father. From now on, you know him and have seen him. And then from Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, our main text, beginning in verse 36. As his disciples were talking together about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And they were startled and frightened and thought they, had saw, they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do, you, why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I have spoken to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany and Lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple, blessing God. Seventy years ago in London, there was an American soldier who was returning to his barracks. It was late at night. In fact, it was early the wee hours of the morning, and as he rounded the corner, he noticed that there was a little boy standing with his nose pressed against the glass of a pastry shop. So he stopped his Jeep, got out and walked up behind the boy, and as he did, he could hear the boy groan as another uh, tray of fresh, fresh pastries was put in the box. The soldier said to the young lad, would you like a pastry? The little boy was startled. He didn't know the man was behind him. And he said, are you kidding? 
With that, the soldier went into the pastry shop and he bought a whole dozen of pastries. And then he brought them out and he said, here, son, here's a whole dozen. I hope you enjoy them. As he turned to walk back to his jeep, he felt a tug on his coat. He looked down and there was a little boy and the little boy said to him, sir, are you God? Forty years ago in Virginia, there was a young teenager, senior in high school, who was loaded down by guilt. In fact, his guilt was so heavy on him, it seemed almost unbearable. So after going to the Lord about it, not getting free, he decided to go to a man in his church, an old guy, about 40. He said to him, can I talk to you, Roger? He said, sure. And so they made their way to a side room. Roger said, what is it? The young man began to confess what had gone on in his life. After about 20 minutes, he finished, and Roger said to him, it's good that you told me. It's certainly good that you told God. But there's one more thing that you need to do. You need to go tell your dad. The young man said, tell my dad. What's my dad have to do with it? The 40-year-old said, I can tell you this, you will never really be free of your guilt until you tell your father. The young man walked away thinking, there's no way I'm telling my father. He's dreaming. I'm not going to tell my dad anything about this. But he couldn't get away from it. Even at night, he tried to fall asleep, and he couldn't because it was on his mind. Finally, after about a week, he got off the courage. He said to his father when he came home from work, Dad, can I talk to you? And he said, sure, come on back to the bedroom. And so the teenager followed his father back to the bedroom. The teenager closed the door. Seconds seemed like hours. Finally, the boy said, Dad, uh, uh, Dad, uh, there, uh, there, there's something, uh, something I need to tell you. His dad said, sure, go ahead. And by this time, he was took, taking off his tie. The boy said, well, Dad, uh, the last few months, you know, I've been seeing that girl and, um, you know, uh, by this time, my, the father was looking in the closet, looking for a shirt. But the guy didn't know it because he had his head down. He was starting to well up with tears. He said, uh, Dad, um, you know, I talked to God about it. I, I talked to this friend about it, and he said I should tell you about it. And, um, Dad, I... Suddenly, he felt the bed move, an arm around his shoulder. And when I looked into my father's eyes, 
I heard him say, Doug, I was young once too. How about shooting a few hoops before dinner? And as we walked together out into the Virginia night, I thought to myself, is this what God's like? Chapter 24 of Luke, the last chapter. Luke tells us about the disciples and they're guilty and they're scared and they're behind closed doors. The likelihood is they're in the same room where three days earlier they had eaten with Jesus. Remember, he had arranged for the room. He had gotten the food ready by someone else. He prepared for the Passover meal with them because that particular meal, he was going to redefine the Passover. He was going to demonstrate to them what they should remember every time they celebrate the Passover, and that is what Jesus was about to do. And now it's three nights later. Can you imagine their guilt? They had eaten with him as friends, and then they went out and betrayed him as enemies. They had sworn to him that night they would never leave him, and yet they all had run away. Can you imagine what they must have been thinking? He stood while his enemies beat him, and we slithered away into the shadows. John, the gospel writer, tells us the same account, but he adds a detail. He said the doors were locked for fear of the Jews. And yet I ask you, who do you think they feared more, the Jews or God? They had sold out the Savior. They had cursed the Christ. And yet in the midst of their guilt... He shows up. You know something? If you ever want to know what God's really like, you need to see Him in the midst of your guilt, in the midst of your shame, in the midst of your fear. And you know what you will find when you see Him in that condition? you will find him to be a lot like that soldier in London. You'll find him to be a lot like that father in Virginia. When God shows up, he's not carrying a gun, he's carrying gifts. And they're the same gifts he always gives to every falling, failing, fearful follower and friend. And that's you. And that's me. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the identity. His first gift, his identity. Look at verse 39. See my hands and feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones 
as you see that I have. The man's from New York, and he writes this. Every Easter, I think of Johnny Erickson Tata. Fifty years ago, at age 17, she dove into the Chesapeake Bay, and she fractured her neck and was paralyzed from the neck down. Six months after the diving accident, she decides to go out of her house for the first time. She feels that she's now prepared. She's been coming to grips with the gravity of her accident as a 17-year-old, and now she wants to go out, and she goes to church. And there on that particular Sunday night, the minister stands up after the music and he says this, I sense that the presence of God is so powerfully present here that the Lord has instructed me to invite all of you to come up to the platform and kneel in his presence. And suddenly Johnny says, I begin to cry and the tears won't stop. But interestingly, she's not crying because she can't go forward. It's not self-pity. She said, the tears come because in front of me are hundreds of people kneeling before God, and in that instant, I'm suddenly reminded of the fact that one day I will be able to do that. She's right. The Bible says there's coming a day when we will be in His presence and there'll be no more sickness, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more wounds, but His. Have you ever thought of that? In heaven, there'll be no more wounds, but His wounds. The last time they've seen Him, they thought His wounds were the ruin of their lives. But this particular night, when they see his wounds, they recognize they were completely wrong. His wounds haven't ruined their lives. His wounds have healed their lives. Let me ask you something. If God could raise himself from the dead, somebody asked me years ago, who raised Jesus from the dead? The Bible says the Father did, the Son did, and the Spirit did. If God can do that, if He can raise Himself from the dead, why can't God heal His own wounds? Why didn't God fill in the holes? Why didn't He make the skin grow over the holes in His wrists and His feet and His side? Why not? There's only one reason. So that we might know that without brokenness, there's no wholeness. You see, they thought what we so often think, that wounds ruin lives, when in reality, wounds heal lives. See, when you understand the purpose of his scars, you begin to understand the purpose of your scars, and it's the same purpose, to enhance the glory of God, to remind us of the joy of heaven, and to bring healing to others. I mean, isn't that exactly what Luke is telling us here? When they see him, when they touch him, instantly they have a U-turn in their thinking. 
The dude is not dead, he's alive. What seemed like death to them really is life to them. And nowhere in the Gospels does Jesus ask for food except here. Nowhere in the Gospels does Jesus ask his disciples to feed him but here. Before this encounter, they ask him for food. Before this encounter, he feeds them. Why the change? So that they might know that without the pain, without the fear, without the brokenness, there's no knowing him, there's no loving him, and there is no serving him. Second, notice the character. Look at verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I've spoken to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms will be fulfilled. Never in the New Testament is does anyone refer to all of the Scriptures with those three dimensions, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. A hundred years ago, the king of Prussia asked his chaplain, about the reliability of the Bible. And he asked it in this way. He said to his chaplain, tell me in one word why the Bible is inspired by by God. Why in one word do we know that the Bible is inspired by God? Chaplain looked at him and said, Israel. And that's right. You think of the history of Israel, how it began all the way through the Old Testament, all the way into the New Testament, Israel is sufficient proof that the Bible is not simply written by men, but by God. And yet there's a greater proof than that. Verse 32, the disciples are on their way to Emmaus. And they say, did not our hearts burn within us when he talked to us on the road, when he opened the scripture to us? But here in the upper room, he does something more. He doesn't simply open the word to them and their hearts are moved. Luke says he opened the scriptures to their minds. And he says to them, everything written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms, speak of me. In other words, everything I said to you, everything I did with you, was a complete fulfillment of what my Father told you. You see, it's one thing to reveal yourself to someone's emotions and to touch them. It's another thing to reveal yourself to a person's touch and to their eyes. But Jesus does so much more than that. He reveals himself through every page of the Bible, and he says, this entire scriptures speak of me. The king said to his chaplain, give me proof in one word that the Bible is written by God, inspired by him. The chaplain said Israel, but there's another better word, and it's Jesus. You see, in your fear, And in your guilt, and in your failure, and in your desperate need to be loved, there is only one person that can meet your need, and that's Jesus. He's the only one you need. 
And from the time God began to reveal himself, he's made that point over and over and over again. And then third, notice the mission. Look at verse 48. You are witnesses of these things. Now think what Jesus is saying here. You fearful ones, you failing ones, you broken ones, just as I was sent to make known my Father's will to you, so I am sending you to make known my Father's will to others. And just as I was sent to you to show you the depth of my Father's character, so I am sending you to show others the depth of my character. Just as I was sent to you to show you that at the root of my character there is unconditional love, so I am sending you to others to show them that that the root of my character is unconditional love. I have a friend who went to dinner with uh, the former rector of a church in Oxford, England. And at that dinner, this rector of that church told the story of the time he threw a wine and cheese party for the theological faculty at Oxford. Wine and cheese party for theological faculty at Oxford. He said, as the party went on, there was a woman there who taught theology. She was on the faculty, and she got a bit tipsy. And she leans over to me, and she whispers in my ear, Michael, I want you to know that I don't believe a single thing about Jesus. All that we're teaching is not true. Michael said, I smiled at her, looked her in the eye, and whispered, but don't you wish it were true? He said instantly she began to cry. She began to nod her head slowly and silently, and she whispered the words, Oh, I wish it were true. Now, what was happening to her? The depth of her wounds were being revealed. Maybe the alcohol loosened her up a bit. Tore off her mask a bit. Got her to the place where she was able to be real. The depth of her wounds were being revealed. You know, she's not the only one. The world and the church are filled with weak, wounded people. Where do we get the idea that our witness is to show others how perfect we are? It's just the opposite. We need to show them how wounded we are, how needy we are, and how Jesus is the only one that can satisfy the deepest need. D.T. Niles once said, and you know this, word, this quote, 
Evangelism is one beggar showing another beggar where to get bread. Who is that bread? There's only one who said he was bread. And he's the only one that can satisfy us because he is the one who's made us for himself. You see, that's what that professor came to know at that party. She came face to face with the depth of her need. Maybe the alcohol revealed it. Whatever it takes. She came to recognize, oh, how I wish it were true. There's only one who can love you the way you want to be loved. There's only one who can love you all the way down to the root of your being. There's only one who can love you completely, unconditionally, without any wavering in the midst of your failure and your guilt and your shame. And that's why I think the best definition of sin is substitution. Sin is substituting someone or something for Jesus. You think of that. Every time you sin, knowingly or unknowingly, you're seeking to substitute something for Jesus. You're wanting to get some need met. And that need is a need that He created so that you would find that He alone can meet your need. You know what it takes to get to know that? You know what it takes to begin to understand that? When you're starving and you're handed a box of pastries. Or better yet, when you're guilty as sin and your father says to you, Doug, I was young once too. Let's go shoot some hoops before dinner. Of all the treasures of Jesus, there is only one treasure that flows directly from the bedrock of his own character, and that's love. He loves you because he can't help it. And the only question he asks you now and in the future is, do you have any idea how much I love you? And the answer is, Lord, I want to know. I want to know so fully that I don't substitute anymore. May that be your desire, too. Think about that. Amen.